Hey, how are you? This is Scott Bryant, Comstock host of the Optimistic Advocate podcast, and this is episode 19. And today we're having the second of three conversations on race with Julie Radlauer-Dorfler and Ryan Coop. Now, the idea for a mini-series on conversations about race was brought forward to me by Julie and Ryan. Julie is the partner in the Roanoke Radlauer Group and also heads up collectively, which is a Radlauer venture that, you know, they got a very simple mission. Create global impact through the engagement of diverse stakeholders to collectively solve complex challenges. Julie doesn't do anything small. Julie Radlauer-Dorfler is a force of nature. She has a long and illustrious history of being a change maker in behavioral health. So very, very excited to have her on the podcast again, as I am her colleague, Ryan Coote, who has spent an entire career in social services, whether it's helping children have been abused, abandoned, neglected. And his current passion is working with homelessness and helping people exit homelessness effectively and become stable housed and productive members of society again. So just an amazing individual doing amazing work. We've got two amazing individuals who are doing amazing work. You know, when they approached me and they said, Scott, with, with, with everything that's going on in this country around race relations and the horrifying news that just seems to keep cascading upon us about senseless killings and violence and racism as it impacts the fabric of our country, they said, we want to start having conversations about race, just conversations. Because if we can show people how we do it, maybe they can glean something from that and do it on their own and do it in their own lives with their colleagues, their friends, their loved ones. It's pretty amazing. Uh, if you haven't listened to the first episode, I encourage you to do so. That's episode 18 in The Optimistic Advocate. But we're on to the second in the three-part series. It's an amazing conversation. So, hey, what do you say we just get into the podcast? Let's go. The focus for the conversation today is privilege, what it means, what it looks like, and how it impacts the way we communicate with each other. So I began the conversation by asking Julie and Ryan to share with each other why the topic of privilege was important to discuss and what the word privilege meant to each of them. Here's what they had to say. Ryan, would you be privileged to go first? <laughs> sure. Well, thank you for offering me that privilege. <laughs> so, you know, privilege to me is a very interesting thing. First of all, let me first by saying there is privilege in this world, you know, but we have to really dissect what privilege really is. When I talk to a lot of my white friends, you know, we'll have this conversation. They may not see the privilege that the world is saying as privilege. They're not seeing that because too often we equate privilege with either wealth or education. And there are a lot of white people who don't have that. So when I speak of privilege, I'm talking about our societal privilege, which I think we have to really get to the root of it. Push aside wealth and education, right? Because those things can be attained right now for anybody in America. Let's look at the societal privileges. So I'm talking about the privilege that has been built and developed over hundreds of years. And it really goes back to the history of this country. And let's be very honest, black people in this country once were once owned by white people, right? <laughs> let's be very honest about this. And over years, they've been systematic things that have been done to maintain that kind of hierarchy in society at the cost of Blacks, Native Americans, and other people as well, too. Other people who weren't white as well, too. So that privilege does exist. 
And I think when people speak to me about privilege, there is some evidence of wealth when it comes to blending and things of that nature, because if your labor, like I said before, last time we spoke, if your labor is taken away from you, you have no way to really gain wealth, right? But let's talk about the context of things that are systematic, that to me are real indicators of privilege, not wealth and education, because we live in a world where world now where people can gain wealth and they can gain education, but there are certain aspects of societal privilege that it's harder for them to gain or they will never gain because of the systematic things that are in place right now. So that's where I would start, Julie. What I, I think of privilege is basically it's like, well, uh, white privilege. I mean, I, so I'm kind of speaking more to, to white privilege, but it's, it's like knowing that the color of your skin is not really going to get in the way of whatever opportunities are there. Whether you earn those opportunities or not, you have access to, you have an advantage or permission, like certain rights or benefits that like maybe other people don't have. And I think like for a white person, like we were talking last time, it's, it's like when you talked about, when we were talking about how do you call a white person or a black person, BIPOC or African-American or black or, right. And it's like white, as a white person, you're like a white person. And it's, it's almost like that race. And I say that, I'm not saying that like unapologetically, you know, when I speak to people, that's what they say. So it's like race doesn't really exist as a barrier, I would say. It doesn't exist as a barrier. So when you look at what other people have or receive or uh, in their experience, and they have something that maybe you think you should have, but you don't have access to it, that's when it becomes a problem. That's when you want it, right? That's when you realize that there's something different between what you have and what others have. And if the reason that other people get something that you think you should have is because of the color of your skin, well, that's a problem. That's privilege. Yeah, I hear you. But I think, you know, I'm, I'm very careful when I throw out the word privilege because there's some real instances in our, in our society of privilege. And then there's some things that is not privilege. You know, we, it may be opportunity, but, but I don't see it as privilege. So for me, when I discuss privilege with my white friends or my friends who um, are not African-American or black, I'm speaking about privilege that has affected generations of black people. If you look at it, so th- think about it from this perspective. Because of stereotypes and all these different things that have carried themselves through from you all the way back to slavery to Jim Crow, that negative, that negative mindset that creates a negative perception of black people that creates a situation where certain opportunities can be against them because of this idea that we have of black people. And it's systematic, right? And I'm going to give you one good example. So for me, when I see things like black people are often judged and, and I'm going to say this because this, this we're often judged by the worst of our race and never judged by the best. It's the truth, man. And I know that's a tough one, but it's the truth, man. You will look at me. And I, like I said before, I'm a large, bald, big beard black man. You're going to see me as somebody that's threatening when I'm the biggest teddy bear you'll find. Very honest. But we're often judged by that. I don't have that privilege of walking into a room and you see me, oh, look at that sweet guy. You mean, wow, look, look at this guy. <laughs> you know what I mean? And especially if I'm not dressed going to work. If I'm on a weekend and I'm doing yard work and I'm wearing like some basketball shorts, 
a dirty T-shirt, you know, so some yard shoes. I'm doing and I'm going and I'm walking into I'm walking into let's say I have to run into Target to grab something. I just came from Home Depot. And you expect at Home Depot. You know, people are working. You expect at that Home Depot. But you want to spend the target. They're going to be like, whoa, watch out for this guy. My buddy John, he could look the same and walk in a target, and they probably wouldn't have that perception. And black people have that perception, too. <laughs> work in target when they see you walk in there. You're going to be like, wait, this guy, this guy may be up to something here. Because society has embedded that thought. that We have that thought process about black people in our, in our minds because of the way we're perceived on TV, of the fact that, you know, we, the representation as of late has not been there and people see us as very threatening. That goes all the way back, all the way back to Jim Crow and post-emancipation because of the negative stereotypes, especially about black men and this, the lazy, predisposed to crime, all these different things. So that's one of the, the privileges that I think somebody, a white male would have over me, you know? Yeah, I mean... I mean, it's just, it's like this feeling of, I mean, some people will say, well, you know, I worked really hard. Like white people would say, well, I worked really hard for this. So I worked really hard for my money. I know you don't want to talk about money, but I worked really hard for this job or I worked really hard for, I mean, I was reading a book, Emmanuel Acho, he writes a book, Uncomfortable Conversations with a Black yeah. Man. And it's, it's a great book because it's really simple and, and laid out in a nice way. He gives this example of, he's an athlete. And he's a sportscaster, you know, so he uses sports analogies all the time, which I think the general public can relate to. Right. Yeah. And so the way that he kind of explains privilege is he talks about if you're getting ready to start a race and there's a black competitor and a white competitor. And as the race is getting ready to start, somebody holds back the black competitor. So the first 200 meters of the race, the black competitor can't compete. And the white competitor gets that lead of like a 200 meter head start. And then the black competitor is allowed to to begin running. So there's no way for the black person to catch up with the white person. As long as the white person is still running, as long as they're still moving forward, they can't catch up. So if you compare that to history, you know, like with African-Americans and you think about slavery, African-Americans can't catch up. And, but white people look at them like, well, why are you so slow? Yeah. At some point you have to recognize that there was an advantage and that whites were given that advantage and you have to figure out how to correct for it if you want life to be fair. But the problem, the problem is that if you're the white runner, you didn't hold the black person back for the first 200 meters. Somebody else did it. You know, slave owners did it 400 years ago. But in today's day and age, it's like this expectation that, I mean, the white person's been training really hard and practicing just as much as, as the black person. Yep. Um, and so they want to win that race, too, because they think they've been working hard and, and they deserve it. There needs to be a recognition that the race is not fair and that we have to be the kind of like the kind of person who wants to make the race fair. And so there are some honorable people that will do the right thing. And then there are a lot of people that maybe they don't even recognize the advantage that they had or they recognize the advantage, but they're not willing to give up the prize. Or what you know, whatever it is, and it's like so. When people work hard, when you believe in in like yeah. this meritocracy that I've worked really hard, then I should get ahead. But it's just not like the reality because we started in different starting lines. And I love what you just said because it's true. Listen, when I talk about white privilege, it's not for my white friends and my white brothers and sisters because we're all part of one race, the human race. For them to feel bad, no, it's not. Recognizing white privilege, for me, you know what it is for me? 
it's recognizing my recognizing me as a black man and having empathy because when you recognize me as a black man in the western hemisphere you can have empathize with wow his family may have how did his family get here what has his family gone through what are some of the trials that they've experienced so by recognizing that you can begin to understand and empathize with some of the societal obstacles that i've faced now i love the analogy of the race but I like to equate it more to baseball. So I was a catcher. I was a fairly good baseball, better wrestler, but a fairly good baseball player. In baseball, when you have a tie at first base, who does it go to? Runner. The runner. You know why? There are about nine other people trying to get that runner out. The way society was constructed prior to, and I hate to use this term post-racial because I think we're having this conversation because we're not there yet, right? We are not there to society was constructed to make sure that all the people with advantage maintained their advantage and those who were thought of as less than in this country stayed where they were. However, you have brave people throughout time and generous people, white and black. Let's be very honest, white and black people say, hey, this isn't right. We need to fix this. However, we were in a structure where they allowed certain things and then took back certain things. So the progress that could have happened Never happened because there are a lot of there are a lot of people who didn't think like you and Scott. They thought that, hey, if we do this, we're going to lose our foothold in the country. And what happened was you had these systematic things that were put in place that created better opportunities for white people. Now, white people today who work just as hard as black people who work hard, they shouldn't feel bad that they've worked hard. They've done the right thing and they've gone ahead. No, 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 no. Do not feel bad about that. And I get the argument. Well, my parents didn't own slaves. I didn't own slaves. I get that. I totally get that. But one of the things that we have to recognize in this country, there's two things in this country that we cannot hide the fact from. The fact that we colonized this country and almost wiped out Native Americans. And the fact that the country's economic structure was built on the backs of black people. These are two things that we cannot forget in this country. And because we've never truly addressed those issues in this country, you may say, well, yo, Native Americans, they get a check every month. But then look at how dilapidated some of the reservations are. Look how these people live. Have you been to some of these things? You know? And then look at the situation black people are in right now. The children of slavery, our racism, our segregation, all these things that we're facing right now in this country, this elitist behavior, those, those are the children of slavery. So slavery never went away. It just had kids and they evolved. All right? They evolved to what we have right now. You look at Communities of color who have traditionally been uh, traditionally marginalized, a lot of them are traditionally marginalized because they come out of those systems where the opportunities weren't there. People weren't able to uh, buy houses. After World War II, when a lot of veterans came back home from the war, they couldn't even get GI bills to buy homes so they can build that generational wealth. So people say, well, what's the problem now? The problem now is that it's a generational thing. That's a psych, it's a lingering thing. And uh, until we address it, and the way I think my white brothers and sisters can address this is by recognizing my skin and understanding some of the struggles that I've gone through. Now, you may say, well, Ryan, you're the exception. You're educated. You have a decent job. You live in a great community. You have a wife and kids and everything. I get that. I totally get that. But let me tell you what I live with every day. I live with every day. When I get pulled over, sometimes my heart races because I don't know what's going to happen. Right. And I got to make sure I'm 10 to 2, I'm making eye contact, and I'm not doing anything crazy that could probably get me shot. When my son's of age to drive, I got to worry about him too. 
I live with every day the fact that somebody may call my child a name that they're not. I live with every day the fact that my kids may not have opportunities because of who they are. So when I gave my kids their names, I gave them names that you could not look on a paper and say, well, I think they're black. You know why? Because in the hiring world, we know this happens, man. People look at these job applications. And if I was Jamal Coot, would I be where I am right now? I probably doubt it, you know, but because I'm Ryan, you know, it works in my favor. There are a lot of things that adversely affect black people and they stem back from that history. And because of that, we're in a world right now where we say, oh, we should just forget about it. You guys have heard that. People say, oh, we should forget about slavery, but you can't because we're feeling the repercussions of it right now. If you have a sickness in your body and you don't deal with it right then and there, it will propagate. It will, it, it, it will populate throughout the body and create more problems down the road. For me, privilege is there, but it's there in certain facets of life. That stress that we deal with when we're pulled over, that stress that we deal with when we're trying to get a loan and stuff like that, you know, it's obvious there's a problem and we have to address the problem. Ryan and Julie have been having a great conversation about privilege. Ryan identified a number of specific examples of how privilege plays itself out in terms of for him as a black man, for his children, the names he has to give them to, to kind of help give them that leg up. So I asked Julie, as a white woman, how does she have a sense of how privilege has either benefited or hindered her in, in her growth and development? Here's what she had to say. You know, Ryan, what you said makes me think about a personal example. I have children, and when we were trying to decide where they were going to go to high school, we were deciding between going to public school or private school or charter school. Um, and I was talking to a friend of mine, a Black friend of mine, about the stress involved in making this decision about where my children would go to school. I told him that we weren't going to go to private because private's just too expensive. And we were waiting to hear about a lottery and a specific school. And if that didn't work out, that we might go to charter. And, you know, I was just kind of explaining to him my choices. And, and he kind of looked at me and was like, um, well, that's, that's white privilege. You know, <laughs> like, do you not realize about this white privilege that you're talking about? And I'm thinking to myself, well, my, I mean, my immediate response, you know, it's kind of like, well, I'm, we're not going to private and uh, we're, we're going to either do public or we're going to do charter and everybody has access to public and charter schools. So why does that make my decision something of, of white privilege? And so he kind of educated me and he was like, well, okay, if you're in living in a low socioeconomic community, you probably don't have access to transportation. So you probably can't take your child to a different school. You might not be able to drive across town to pick your child up from school because you're working multiple jobs. And he kind of explained it to me as uh, more in the way of, if I were not to use the school that I should be using, I'm taking tax dollars away from a school that may be lower socioeconomic, that may, that may need the school. Then at the end of the day, it came down to choices and options. And so the privilege was that I had options, whereas maybe other people don't. And, and so, I mean, that's not a perfect example, but for me, that was kind of like, I would say a moment where I, could, I can understand how 
the actions that I take and the choices that I make can impact others and that I have to be thinking beyond what's just best for my personal self, my immediate family, to think about the greater good, which is a hard choice to make. It's the same thing as the race. You know, somebody's worked really hard. They think that they deserve to win. So it's it's like the same things. So my children are in public school. I mean, <laughs> it made me think, it made me stop and think and reflect on what are the values that I believe we need to have in today's day and age. So Julie, what are you doing to actively stay engaged with this process to recognize that privilege? Well, I mean, I think it shows up for me. I would say it shows up for me every day, right? And I have to really pay attention because it can go right by me (laughs) if I'm not really engaged and paying attention. That's how I roll. You know, I'm doing too many things too quickly. I'm in the process of getting my DRPH, my PhD in public health. And so I'm in in the midst of doing a research project. And so one example that I think you know, I'm talking to a lot of people right now. I'm talking to a lot of African-American families to ask them about their experiences with, with mental health. And so I was interviewing an African-American mom and I was telling her a little bit about my project. And so she kind of immediately got really upset with when I was explaining to her about my project around structural racism um, and how I believe that we need to change the way that services are provided. And what she said was, she's a black woman who's been living this every day for her entire life. And here I am, this white woman who just kind of waltzes in and says, oh, there's structural racism. Let me fix the problem, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and that, and what she was saying is, and you're going to succeed. She's like, I'm screaming from the rooftops for years and years and years and being completely ignored. And you're just going to walk in and try to fix the problem. That hit me really hard because here I am well-intentioned and trying to do the right thing and trying to learn and trying to change the world. <laughs> and her reality is that she thinks it's so much easier for me. And I have to believe that that's true. I have to believe that she wouldn't have said it if it wasn't true. And then there's that, well, so what do I do with that? And that's where, you know, where I'm constantly talking to people, talking to my friends, talking to you, reading books, trying to figure this stuff out about how I'm going to show up in the world to try and honor everybody's struggle and then use my privilege when I can. Just before this, I was on a call and I was interviewing somebody and he said, you know, I want to refer you. I'm going to tell, tell this organization that they should work with you and you, and you should help them deal with their race equity. And I said to him, you know, that thank you. I'm honored that you would consider that. But you know what? I'm a white woman. <laughs> I don't really feel like this is my space. Tell me why. Why do you think that? I believe that I could be a supporting role. I believe that I can take a step back. I believe that there are Black women out there that can do it. And so if I'm going to be running a race with somebody and I got to start first, the only way that we're ever going to be equals is if I push somebody out in front of me who maybe wouldn't have gotten there first. Can I share something with you about that statement? Yeah. I agree. And I don't agree with you. Go figure. Let me, let, let, <laughs> let, me, let me tell you why. And this is going to sound crazy. You know, black people in this country need white allies. They need white people like you and like Scott who are forward thinking who are going to say, hey, let's discuss this, let's figure this out. Let me tell you why that woman made that comment. 
because that's a powerful statement. That's privilege. She was out there saying these things, living her truth and trying to share it to the world. But nobody listened. Why? Because she's black. They see her as angry and we don't really care what she has to say. But Julie, who is a white woman, well-educated, very smart, who can probably deliver the message in a different way, can go into a room and sit with an elected official or a person of power and have that conversation where this woman will never have the opportunity. She ain't even gonna get to the front desk, <laughs> okay? But you will, because that's a part of the privilege you have. And there's nothing wrong with that, because that privilege can be used to help move this conversation forward and help bring us to a better world. So that privilege, it can be a power if used in the right way. And that's what I'm trying to say to you. So if you're given that opportunity, you got to take it and bring somebody with you who may be a black person and have them, you and that person have that conversation with that group. Because you know what? That door is open for you where it may not be open for somebody else. So you're using your privilege to move the agenda forward. So when I say privilege is not a bad thing, it's not a bad thing. But when used in the wrong way, it is. So at the end of the day, one of the things that you said a few minutes ago, which I really loved, and you didn't really say it, but I heard it. You recognize the skin and you're seeing the struggles that people in the skin encounter every day. And you're understanding that and you want to play a role. But you can't take a backseat on the bus, Julie. It doesn't work that way because at the end of the day, you know, I think it was Ellie Wiesel that said something that's so powerful. It's one of these things that I, that, 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 I, that I have in my wall in my office. Those who stayed quiet were just as complicit as those who did the acts. Yeah. When we first started talking, Julie, I said there's only 13% of us in this country. We make up 30% of the population. We need people of other races who are going to have those opportunities to help move this agenda forward. Black people didn't free themselves. Okay? Civil rights is that because black people, you know, yes, Martin the King was a proponent, but he had other people with him who are of other races moving with him. So, so Julie, in order for you to become an effective advocate, tell me what you need to do to push that envelope forward. Uh, I think that I'm getting more confident the more I learn, the more I can talk to people and hear their perspective and use their perspective. I, it's not like I'm going to do all this research and, and, and live this life and then just sit back and relax, you know. I have every intention to stay involved and I would be honored to do presentations with a black person. I just don't feel like I should be the person to go take the lead and go do it myself and not bring somebody along. So I like what you said about bringing somebody along. I think that I'm really okay with being uncomfortable. <laughs> Look, we're here talking about this. <laughs> like I'm, it's good. I'm good. Uh, and when, and when that person was frustrated with me and ex expressing her frustration over the system um, and what she's experienced and, and I wasn't uncomfortable for me, I was, concerned that I hurt her. Why? Because I felt like I was here trying to learn from her so that I can then take her information and try and help other people with her information. And I didn't want to upset her by the questions I was asking her. Like, I, don't, I just don't want, you know, I want people to be happy. I don't want people to be hurt by the questions that I have to ask them. You know? Okay. Hmm. That's interesting. <laughs> <laughs> you know, this is a subject, man, where not everybody's going to be happy with it. You're going to get people, <laughs> black people and white people going to be mad at you and mad at me, you know, but we can't make white guilt or black guilt curtail us from moving forward, man. 
Yeah, I don't, I, you know, that whole guilt thing. I believe that there are people that experience white guilt. A lot of people that experience white guilt. You know, guilt, the definition of guilt is a self-imposed feeling of being wrong. So I don't really feel guilty. I can feel what I feel and then use that emotion to power forward, to come to action. I can't sit in guilt. Not to say that people don't experience it because there's a lot of people that do experience it. I know a lot of people that are paralyzed by it. And I think that as a white person, if you're experiencing guilt, it's not about your feelings. This whole thing is not about you and your feelings. It's about understanding how somebody else feels and then doing what you can do to make it better for them. Don't, don't get stuck in, this makes me uncomfortable. I don't want to talk about this because I don't know what to say. Or I'm, It's not about that. It's about how the other person is feeling and then what you can do. I love what you just said because, you know, that's what I want to hear. I think there are a lot of people who allow that guilt and you shouldn't feel that guilt because you didn't personally do this to that person. Right. You're not, if you're not personally doing things out there to hold people back, you should not feel guilt. But it goes back to what we, what we said in the, what we said in the initial part of this conversation, recognizing that there are certain situations where privilege is being extended and figuring out how you can help to remedy that situation. As we near the end of the conversation, I asked Ryan and Julie to reflect on their uh, takeaways from this conversation. There was so much richness, and I wanted them to talk to each other about what they were going to take away from this uh, time spent together. Here's what they had to say. You know, Ryan, this has been a great conversation. I always love talking to you. I think my takeaway from today is that as a white person, we have to recognize our privilege. You know, that's really the first step is that self-awareness. And once you recognize it and just own it, then figure out how you're going to use it to create a more just society. I think also um, another takeaway would be to listen to the difficult things without making it about you and you and your feelings. Try to focus on, on them and what they're experiencing. And if there's some way that you can be supportive, I think that White people need to open your eyes, pay attention. Don't belittle somebody else's experiences. If you see something, pay attention and listen. And even if there's something, you know, egregious is we should intervene, but only when we're asked or invited to, to intervene or somebody needs our help, not intervene because we think that something's happening that's unjust. I think that is a bit extreme. And I know people have guilt, you know, shame and guilt and Read a book, talk to somebody, watch a, t- watch a TED Talk, watch a YouTube. There's so much, inf- so much information out there. James Corbin has this uh, just cute little clip on YouTube about white privilege with his sense of humor. Um, you can read, you know, there's a TED Talk by um, Peggy McIntosh that talks about white privilege. You know, and she really explains white privilege. She's a white woman, an elderly white woman, and she explains white privilege. <laughs> she wrote a great book in 1988 about it too. Yeah. Yeah. It's a great, a great essay. And, and there's so much out there yeah, that you can just, just look at yourself, examine it and see if you can figure it out. Julie, this was, I think this for me, we've, we've had a lot of conversation, but this one was the most personal for me because I really spoke about some of my, some of, some of the feelings that I feel every day living in this skin that I'm so proud of and some of the struggles that are associated with it. 
one of the takeaways that I got from today, and, I, and you got you you really opened my eyes to this, you know. And and as enlightened as I think I am, sometimes sometimes I'm not because I'm always thinking, well, I gotta do this, I gotta teach my kids this, and I gotta make sure my kids know this, and I gotta know that. But at the end of the day, I learned from this conversation that I need allies that look like you because it helps me to be a better, it helps me to be a better citizen to this country when they see people of different races coming together to try to solve a situation. If we really want to, you know, this whole notion, well, we don't see color, you got to see color, man, because if you don't see color, you don't see the struggle, you don't see certain things, you don't see the history because it's a part of it. But if we truly want to aspire to be a post-racial society, I realize that people like you and me need to have more conversations like this and be very open and vulnerable. I got to tell you my experience. I got to bring up white guilt, even though people are like, what, Ryan? What, why would you say? Because it's something that has to come up mm-hmm. because people that look like you, they, they have that. And it's and you shouldn't, you know, because mm-hmm. if you if you're feeling bad about it, that means you want to do something about it. So act on it. Don't feel guilty about it. Act on it, you know, and have conversations like what we're having right now and learn about somebody that may look different from you, but is the same as you, the same as you in the same tone. So that's what I learned, man. I got to, for as, for as open and as gauging as I think I am, there are parts of me that I've, I've kept quiet. I never really talked about how I fear for my son and my daughters, but I got really emotional when I started thinking about my children, you know, especially my son, because he will be a, well, he's thin as a rail, but he'll grow up to be a tall black man too. As the conversation came to a close, I asked Julie and Ryan what they wanted to focus on for the third and final segment of this three-part series focused on conversations about race. Here's what they had to say. Uh, you know, when you were talking, you, you mentioned something about how, how you have to see color. And I think that that's something that we should talk about because I think that a lot of white people kind of walk around saying like, oh, no, I don't see any color. I, I'm not racist because I don't see color. And I think that from listening to you, if I don't see your culture, your, your color, I'm not honoring your culture. Yeah. And the struggle, too, that we go through and to understand more about the struggle as a whole. You see the color, you see it. You want to talk about that? I think it's a perfect conversation because a lot of us, we hear that all the time. And for black people, that's like, man... <laughs> That's one of these things where we're like, man, don't say that. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. All right. Well, there you have it, folks. Another amazing conversation between Julie Radlauer-Dorfler and Ryan Coote. And you heard it. The next episode is going to be on the topic of I don't see color. Ought to be fascinating. I'm looking forward to it. I know you are as well. Once again, big time thanks to Ryan Coot and Julie Radlauer-Dorfler for showing incredible vulnerability uh, and modeling an effective way to have a conversation about race. This is Scott Bryan Comstock, and this is The Optimistic Advocate, and I will see you later. We're happy to share whatever we've got.